0: this podcast is sponsored by our friends at The Natural Shoe Store. We love The Natural Shoe Store. They're gorgeous and sustainable. What more could you want? The Natural Shoe Store, because every step matters.
1: Hello, it's Kirsty here. Thank you for joining us on the Dumbo Feather Podcast. This week's conversation is between Barry and Canadian culture activist Stephen Jenkinson. His work is really hard to classify. You may have read his conversation with Piers Newton-John in issue 54 of Dumbo Feather magazine. Stephen Jenkinson has worked extensively with people who are dying and their families. He's worked in medical care and he's also a sculptor and canoe builder. So what I mean about classification... Stephen's the author of a handful of books, including Come of Age, Money in the Soul's Desires, and Die Wise. Stephen travels the world with Gregory Hoskins, performing their Nights of Grief and Mystery Tour, which is going to be visiting Australia and New Zealand in October, November this year. You can find out more at orphanwisdom.com. We really hope you enjoy this conversation. It goes pretty deep.
0: So, Stephen, the internet connection is really slow, which is so interesting because it's making me breathe and slow down and wait for the response, which is coming through like an echo across time, which feels appropriate given your work. And I would have to say that one of my greatest mentors in life is a very big fan of yours. And she doesn't usually talk about living mentors of hers, but she was the first person to tell me about your work and say that she felt that you were doing some of the most important work in the world. And I, th- I think I have felt like maybe I'm not spiritually mature enough to metabolize the depth of your work. And I'm interested to know about wisdom, because the work that we're doing we talk a lot about wisdom and action wisdom and action in a pulse with one another but i think i still have a lot to explore about what is wisdom and what is right action i'm sure you could talk about it for a long time what would you say is with the right wisdom and action
2: i think we could begin with your observation about the quality of the internet connection it's a kind of discipline isn't it hmm. That the automaticness, the quickness, the cleverness of our responding is really reined in when we have to wait for the full delivery of what the other person has said, and you know they finished, but you haven't heard it all yet. So it's coming to you, as you say, in a kind of echo. And aside from the immense geography that separates us, the technology separates us more, it seems to me. So, this is a wonderful discipline that you've pointed out, and I'm glad for it too. But as to wisdom more specifically, I would characterize wisdom as something that escapes you most of the time as a self conscious condition. And I would distinguish it these days, especially from prejudice. Why is that? Well, this technology is being forced into heavy labor on behalf of prejudices of all kinds. And it's not clear to me that wisdom can really survive in a circumstance of grinding, opinionating, which seems to proliferate in this medium. So it's important in a time like this, I think, that we find a way to distinguish wisdom as not being something that people own. The prejudices, on the other hand, are all theirs. So here's the distinction I would make between the two. People don't have to work at their prejudice. Their prejudices are very available to them. In fact, so available that they're self-generating. They have a genius about them. Prejudices do. All you have to do is wake up in the morning and your prejudices are ready to go. You don't wonder about them very much at all, really, I don't think. Nobody goes for a weekend workshop to work on their prejudices, to fine-tune their prejudice, to get close to get under and inside the depth and the heart of their prejudices and so on. Why is that? Because they're naturally occurring, sadly, but truly. They are naturally occurring. They're things we're fundamentally responsible for speaking and acting upon, but they're naturally occurring too. And wisdom, on the other hand, takes an immense amount of work, ongoingly, I think, because there's not much in daily life that hands you wisdom. You really have to work at being able to distinguish your convictions and the understanding that the root word of conviction, of course, is convict. So there's not much left to the imagination once you think that thought. Wisdom has much more to do with what has preceded you than what is within you. So I would relate wisdom to something like the very best of a cultural, religious, or spiritual tradition and prejudice is ordinary, if you will, but it doesn't require any work. Wisdom is extraordinary and requires a lot of work. So it's not surprising that wisdom doesn't seem to last. Wisdom has a way of answering for itself. It makes a way for itself of appearing. It's something like this. The genius of prejudice is that it doesn't have to go looking for much. Wisdom, on the other hand, is constantly investigative, constantly wondering and not so sure of itself.
0: In one of the reviews of your work, it said, Stephen Jenkinson's elegant and sorrow-freighted book brings prophetic insight rather than pastoral affirmations. And I can't help it. I want the pastoral affirmations. (laughs) So when you talk about Wisdom being constantly investigative and prejudices being readily available from the moment we wake up. I'm really struggling. I'm 44, mother of three children, and I do a lot of things in my action life. I'm struggling with needing succor and comfort at such a turbulent and unknown time and really wanting to orient towards wisdom. And like you said, it's fleeting. And Jung talks about the self one and the self two, the ordinary us full of prejudices and, and daily tasks and the extraordinary divine version of us that is wise. And like you said, recognizes wisdom when it's present in us and in others. But I guess I'm trying to hunt for the best way to live in this time.
2: I don't blame you. You know, at the risk of sounding like I'm reassuring you, you can get reassurance from a lot of places. (laughs) You really can. Reassurance is almost as available as prejudices are. It's very, very common currency, reassurance of all kinds. And the service of hope and hoping, that's very, very, very prevalent. So with all irony aside, I understand completely you have three kids you're looking to the near future and hoping the sky doesn't fall. And I don't blame you. However, I think it behooves people of my age and your age to fess up, to have a grown up realization that our instinct or our demands for reassurance are not borne out by the circumstances right now. That doesn't foreclose on possibilities to come, but I think it behooves us to say that we're in a deeply troubled time and our willingness to proceed accordingly, is not that apparent. You know, I've been paying attention lately to a few of the cultural critics who come my way from time to time, and I've noticed a subtlety that I didn't hear a year or two ago, and it goes like this. Well, it's clear now that we're not gonna be able to prevent what's happening. The worst is already underway. So now we have to recalibrate our understanding of what we're doing here. That sort of acknowledgement, that sort of admission. I'm reminded of a story I heard that came from Iceland not that long ago. Apparently, the local municipal government decided to establish a sign at the foot of a glacier that was quickly receding. And the sign apparently said three things. We know what's happening. We know what we should be doing. Only you will know if we did it or not. And it's not clear, at least the way the story was told to me, who that you is. In the last line, I suspect it's the glacier because a lot of Icelanders are old order animists, and that's still alive there from what I've seen when I was there a few times. So we could put such a sign at the foot of every one of our carefully nurtured convictions that somehow goodness will prevail. And we should put one of those signs at the foot of every one of those convictions. Are we now in the time of saying, we are not any longer going to know if what we've done, the measures we've decided to take personally and at a community level and beyond, are going to have the consequences that our desire to be assured plead for. I don't think I'm trafficking in darkness here when I say that I think it's fairly clear that the last twenty-five to thirty-five or forty years have provided abundant evidence of the willingness of the cultures most consequential in the world right now, or the unwillingness of those cultures to take upon themselves the limitations that heretofore have only been problems for them to solve, not gods to be obeyed. And I think that's the great sorrow now. We have the growth mania culture.
0: What do you mean by that last bit? Problems to solve? Can you say more about that?
2: Sure. The cultures that have the biggest consequence, the biggest footprint in the world today, are where they are because of their skill at problem solving. And the problems brought about by technology required more technology and so on and so on it went. And that's what the 20th century was. There's no doubt about it. And alas, one of the things that was there to be learned fairly early on is that the problems we were solving, we shouldn't have been solving. Meaning these things were actually limits that were being entrusted to us, limits of growth, limits of capacity, limits of innovation, limits of expertise, those kinds of things. Those limits were to be respected and to be learned from and to be held in some considerable regard, but they never really were. Every limit to the Western secular tradition has been a temporary problem that more innovation will overcome, and it's done so. And with the habit of overcoming limits, We are in the position that we are in now with still no capacity or no wisdom when it comes to living out the limits that are entrusted to us. We still don't know how to do it, even though the evidence is abundantly clear that the limits were for our sake and for the sake of the world.
0: So in your writing, in your work, you propose that a lot of our problems stem from a lack of a skill in grieving and that the antidote to our cultural and personal depression is the genuine expression of sadness. Is that what you are also talking about, the limits and the depths of feeling our feelings without distraction? I know you've written books on grieving and you've lived a life at that limit where the physical body ends and we die. I guess I'm just curious about That sentence, the genuine expression of sadness, is that an antidote to not knowing how to live in this moment?
2: I don't know if there are antidotes to not knowing. Before we get into the subject matter you're asking me about, but the dynamics of not knowing require knowing. They don't require antidotes. They require learning. The amazingly powerful thing about learning is the more you learn, the less you know, the less your certainties prevail. There's a lot of upside to that arrangement, but it's not a really good foundation for an all-ahead, full civilization. So I'm talking to you right now in the throes of uh, news I received a couple of days ago. Friends of ours in England, their son died, and he'd been sick his whole life. He died just before his 12th birthday, and he died in the cradle of the most advanced medical technology that that country had available for the highly specialized illness that he had. And the great torment and challenge for the parents at the time that they contacted me, which is 10 years ago, was how to live out the understanding that their son will not survive this, that he's very unlikely to see puberty. How are they to live that? And the cheerleading throngs around them would have made it extremely difficult to live that out. Treasure every moment is a recipe for insanity. I know it sounds good, but nobody can treasure every moment. Many moments are not treasurable. So then is there another orientation to the fullness of life that includes death at 11? And if I'm asking the question, not just about individuals that I know, but where we are as cultures, yours and mine and half a dozen others, it's not clear, I don't think, that the willingness to learn grief is turned to in any situation but an extreme one. I've rarely seen people turn to grief voluntarily. Grief is another affliction, another intrusion, another breakdown of the natural order. And when you come to grief with that understanding, it's much more often than not grievance than grief. And when you investigate the prayers and petitions of people who are grievance driven as opposed to grief informed, you'll find that most of them are demands for more. Again, you know, thwarting the limits that are entrusted to us. But when an 11 year old dies on your watch, no matter what you know, no matter how clever you are, how wise you are, how much a denizen of the West you are, the invitation is plain, that the circumstances are gonna play out and they're not gonna ask us first if we're okay with it. And so I think the circumstances we put into motion here, culturally speaking, environmentally speaking, technologically speaking, the consequences are not yet available to us. Maybe this story illustrates this well too. A friend of mine is a stone carver. He carves very small jewelry from stones he finds in the desert down in the southern United States. And he's part of an indigenous community. And they have a hard time getting their work out there. And so somebody said to him, you got to have a website. And on the website, you got to have a film. And people can see you in action. It's really going to help your work. And you're going to help marketing. And so he agreed to do it. And part of the production team... It was brought to bear upon him and his work. They sent a drone into the air and they filmed him walking through the desert collecting stones and so on. And so the finished film came around and he was very pleased with it. He wanted to show his mother and his parents were also traditional stone carvers and traditional people in that community. So she's watching it. She's quite enthralled until that scene when her son is seen from overhead by this contraption. She gets up without a word, walks out of the room. Doesn't say anything. He doesn't know what's going on. He goes after her and asks her, you know, is she bothered? she troubled? What was it? She just pointed back to the room and she said, we're not supposed to be able to see that. That's all she said. Now, you could say, oh, cranky old grandmother, you know, not changing with the times. You could. Or you could consider the distinct possibility that traditional people who are bearers of the wisdom of the time have warnings as much as they have accolades and reassurances. They have warnings. They're prophetic in some fashion. And she could see the slippery slope of being able to see yourself from on highs, from the God's eye view, if you will. And she didn't see any good coming from it. I have to say, I'm with her. It's a small story, and there's much worse problems than personal use drones buzzing about in the air. But if there were ever a sign of how unlimited we want to be, personal use drones everything that they'll be turned to in the coming decade is a fairly good example.
0: So, forgive me, I'm going to keep coming back to the temporal. Sure. What is the right way to live in this moment? What is the right action? How do you see Endeavor making things, volition, getting up in the morning in, like you said, one of these half dozen Western civilizations, we're living within a container that Was created long before we were born. And maybe we're living out the end of that story. I would like to think, and maybe that's because I'm not wise enough, but I'd like to think of being the medicine for this moment with my life and with my actions. And people have different agency and sense making and capacity. What is the right action? When you're talking, I think I should just be listening, not talking and doing a lot of spiritual work and wisdom work. But then every day I'm pulled out into action, into doing, into that ordinary life, but also what is my work to do? How do we find the answer to that in this moment?
2: Okay. Well, of course, your question is too vast, isn't it? You know that it is. What's right action? There's all kinds of religious traditions that will give you stock answers and quickly. I'm not one of those guys, and I don't have recourse to one of those traditions. So I have a different response, that's all, to go along with those other responses. And that's not to say that mine's better or works better or is truer. None of those things are so. But since you're asking me, you know, we could wonder aloud together and consider the following. There is no right work, because typically we use the word right as a kind of signpost for achieving that reassurance out ahead of time before we do the work we want to be reassured that the work is right work yeah which is very understandable but it's a little prophylactic the way that actually happens you want to be reassured of the value of the work before you undertake the work this if i may say is underdeveloped spiritually that's one two the mania for solutions is of course cresting i'm aware of it You're aware of it too, but you've mentioned more than once that we're of different generations. We're of different ages. And so one of the answers to what you've asked is, depends on what age you are. My orientation to life is different from yours, partly as a consequence of where I stand in my life and the likelihood of me seeing another decade, which is not great. Okay, that being the case, I'm not operating with a future to obtain my reassurance and my job satisfaction from. I don't have a future. I mean, I bear one in mind, but I won't see it. And so that's mournful for me to say aloud. And I grieve to say it. I'm not sure I wish it was otherwise, but I grieve that it's that way. And so I have to operate very specifically according to the times I'm in and the troubles as they present themselves to me. And I don't have the luxury of the kind of spandex spirituality available to me that yawns out into the foreseeable future and beyond that. And I can obtain some reassurance from the fact that the trees are still standing, some of them, you know, all of that. What to do though, not how to feel better, but what does one do? The answer to the question is determined by the troubles of the times, it seems to me, not by our need to be escaping the troubles of the times or to be victorious over them. The troubles of the times are our best teachers. I'm mindful right now of a line that uh, Leonard Cohen issued 30, 40 years ago now. He said, I'm sentimental, if you know what I mean. I love the country, but I can't stand the scene. So I'm neither left nor right. I'm just staying home tonight, getting lost in this hopeless little screen. But I'm stubborn like those garbage bags. The time cannot decay. I'm junk, but I'm still holding up this little wild bouquet. I would include myself in that description of a life's work here as the beginning of the ending of life begins to show itself to me. So I'm a student of the troubles, and I think that the poverties that are clearly available to us have as much to teach and are as abundant in their resource as any hope could ever be.
0: So... I can feel the chasm between me to that level of spiritual maturity and maybe many, many millions of people on the planet to be able to really imbibe that, really take that in and live with that grounded presence, beloved presence. I don't know how you would call it. And we talk about at the Small Giants Academy, we're doing leadership forums and workshops and We have a mastery of business and empathy. We're doing that work at this time in our lives. And we talk about leadership for a hopeful future, which I can already tell you would have something to say about that phrase. What do you say to leadership for a hopeful future? What would you teach those leaders coming in?
2: Well, I would leave them to their hopes, certainly. I mean, nobody would invite me to take on their hopes. So it's proper to just leave them alone and then simply see if I could do something to provide a little bit of the rest of the story. That's all. I'm not pretending here in my responses that I don't understand how bad it is and that I don't understand the claim that makes upon people of your age and people your children's age. I've got a touring musical performance called Nights of Grief and Mystery, and it's informed by exactly the kind of thing that you're asking me now. Certainly, it is. And it's my direct action. Is it hopeful? I don't think so. And all that means is there I was with dying people month after year, and I saw them being obliged to be hopeful. And I saw what being obliged to be hopeful did to them. And one of the things it did is made it virtually impossible for them to undertake the work of dying because hopeful people are not interested in working on their dying. Of course, there are exceptions, but as a rule, hopeful people are hopeful about the future. They're not hopeful about the present. And so between hopeful people about the future and me, we might be able to get something done. See, because we're not engaging the elephant at the same place, on the same limb. They insist on being hopeful. I can't blame them. Things are grim. My inclination is to take on the work free of the promise of the efficacy of the work. And I don't expect that to have a lot of takers. And I'm not even clear that it's, quote, working for me. (laughs) But I suspect you invited me onto this to talk with you for a handful of reasons that you've not really alluded to yet. And I think one of them might be just a guess that the people you're working with already have the mantra of hope and its facility for action available to them and worked out to some extent, not all the details, but as a general orientation to life and to culture work and community work and so on, probably so. So on the surface of it, I have no place among you. And I don't know if this is a consequence of different ages or not, but I think it's fair to say that given our different ages, we don't have an obligation to occupy the same vantage point or even a mutually recognizable vantage point because I've had my forties when things were getting grim and you have your forties in a time where the grimness has come. So we can't occupy the same place. And the good news is we don't have to. And so For what it's worth to you, and it's not for me to say, I can make available to you the vantage point of someone who will not last a long time and takes no joy in that, but who has a fairly faithful memory about how things have come to be as they are. And in that sense, is more willing to be a repository of how things have come to be as they are, rather than a standing vending machine of solutions that's short on how drastic it is but big on what to do about it and how to feel that you're doing something about it. That second part is not important to me at this point in my life, feeling that what I'm doing is important. I don't have any attachment to the feeling at all. It's not available to me and it doesn't seem to be necessary. And yet I think I'm engaged. The nature of my engagement is not at the level of my personal satisfaction, to the level of the grief-endorsed conscience that has come to me as a consequence of the things that I've seen.
0: What does your grief-endorsed conscience compel you to do or tell you? I know that this is all your work. I can't help but ask really big questions. You are coming to here to Australia and New Zealand with your Nights of Grief and Mystery tour. Right. What compels you to get on a plane? What compels you to put a Nights of Grief and Mystery tour?
2: It's a great question. So I'm going to read something to you that I wrote almost two years ago right now that turned into a book called A Generation's Worth. This is the beginning. I'm a pulmonary refugee now. My sensitivities don't negotiate. They foreclose and they force me southwards. It's been a good practice for a plague as things have gone. I keep my head down in heavy weather and I keep my collar up. But still, I know the rumor or the promise of people who want to learn their times laying down their truancy, and I'm drawn to that. I have the scent of the road all around me. It's in my craw, it's in my head, and so I keep my boots by the door, and my hat on a hook, and I keep a guitar tuned, and a good jacket creased on a hanger, just in case the fog lifts, just in case the coast clears. And I keep my mind on my work, and I'm not done. That's what I'm saying, should the saints be listening. Generationally, this is a stab at redemption. A man without a choice is a hard thing to shake loose. So the quick answer to your question is, I don't really have a choice. I mean, I I do, in the drastic sense of the term, I could choose to sit here, I could choose this forum, this disembodied forum. But to the extent that the pandemic permits and the local authorities permit and so forth, and good sense seems to dictate, I would rather the tank be empty at the end. Just like I would hope that the psychic equivalent of my estate, I hope it's distributed by the time I'm done. I mean, there's really no sense in learning things and keeping them to yourself. Years ago, I was trying to learn how to be a stone carver. And I found an old man who'd done it his whole life. And I hope he kind of let me in on the secrets of the trade, you see. I phoned him up. He'd been doing it for 60 years. I'd been doing it for six months or something. And I asked if he would let me in on the whole thing. And his response was, do you work every day? And I said, well, I think about it every day. And he said, well, you call me back when you work every day. And then he hung up the phone. So I worked on it for two more weeks every day, not very long. And I picked up the phone again. And I said, this is, he said, I know who it is. I said, well, I'm hoping it's only two weeks. I grant you, but uh, can I come over and can we talk and can you tell me things? He said, fine, we're going to strike a deal. I'll tell you everything I know. You keep none of it to yourself. If you do, whether I'm alive or whether I'm dead, I will find you and I will haunt your ass to kingdom come. That's what he said. Now, I agreed. I'm trying to keep up my end of the deal so I'm not haunted in the midnight hour by virtue of not keeping up my end of what I vowed to do. Well, I know it makes me a drag at parties, but I don't think it's fascistic on my part to make available what's occurred to me. I don't think I'm overly forceful with it. I'm not out there selling anything. If people ask, I'm happy to talk. And if they don't ask, I understand what that means. So, one of the things that prompts me is I'm 68, not 48, and I'm not going to be 68 ever again. And this is as good as it gets at this point. And I'm reminded of my friends in England just a few days ago, how these things go. And I'm informed by the frailties that are just underneath the magnificence of our achievements. And I can't turn away from them.
0: All my questions feel difficult to ask after your answers (laughs) because of where they take me. But I guess I've asked you this already, but it's such a beautiful phrase I think it's related to the urgency and the calling to share what you've learned. You wrote, yeah. build a mountain, find a burden to carry, climb. I think I'm still talking about agency here. And what did you mean by that?
2: Well, I think this is a bit of a paraphrase of how I understand the Nights of Grief and Mystery Project to be, and to be slightly more elaborate about it, because it's a musically informed evening of recitation, basically, storytelling recitation. And the project, it's not a self-evident thing to do in a time like this, or perhaps any time, because we don't entertain, nor do we hector, nor do we advocate for some particular slice of the pie. So we ceremonialize, you see. It's a very unusual undertaking, but that's what we do every night, is we make a ceremony of our congregation, of our meeting. We invoke it and provoke it and convoke it. And it's my principal responsibility to ride herd over the ceremony. We're not converting anybody to anything. That's not what a ceremony is. That's what a mission is. So our undertaking goes like this. We're standing on a piece of flat land all together. So in the course of the next two hours, we'll imagine a mountain, we'll build the mountain, we'll walk up the mountain, we'll see life from there. That's not bad in two hours, but building the mountain is the part that a lot of people don't have patience for. Building the mountain is a way I think of saying, you have to be able to see the urgency of the undertaking without being able to see the outcome. And that, I think, your questions about agency, I'm responding to them very favorably, I think. But it wouldn't confuse agency with a sense of reward or certainty or that all shall be revealed because you've done the right thing. You learn if you've done the right thing in hindsight. I don't think ever at the time. So I believe that's what the phrase, apropos of Mounted, And then, of course, I didn't invent any of this stuff. So the Zen monks have a beautiful orientation to this in terms of their pursuit after something we could call enlightenment. They said before enlightenment, the mountain was just a mountain. And during the course of the enlightenment, the mountain was anything but a mountain. And now that enlightenment has arrived, a mountain is a mountain. That's not very satisfying as a fridge magnet saying. But if you take that allegation between your teeth, and hold it there without trying to turn it into something it's genius without being habit forming or crowd pleasing but it's genius it's just not customer satisfaction an agency if it's devoted to the betterment of the world doesn't require you to feel good about yourself in order to undertake the work so that's the distinction i'd offer you now is that the sense of agency not include a sense of payoff the notion that the whole thing is operated by 10 guys in a tower somewhere calling all the shots and tearing everything down is a very compelling notion. And no doubt there's some truth to it. So, therefore, the notion of personal agency becomes paramount for most people who are concerned about these things to take the power into their hands in all manner of phrases like this. But it's clear that the power congregated in the hands of the people who are in charge hasn't done them particularly great. I'm not sure that it would be particularly great for those of us without a lot of experience on the matter of power, take power into our hands as a kind of sane alternative. But if that's the way it goes, I guess we'll see if that concern I have about it is right or wrong.
0: I feel really, I'm deeply moved. And I also heard everything you said. I don't know if I understood it all. And I'm sad about that because I've always wished for more spiritual maturity and even more spiritual Awareness. It feels to me that you are someone who, for a very long time, has had access to a groundedness in that spiritual life, the place where a human being's consciousness has the potential to really know something in the not knowing and the lack of attachment. But I'm so far from that, it makes me sad because. You were talking about truancy before, and I'm like the biggest truant. (laughs) I love distraction and comfort and to be reassured, and I still have those childish wants and needs. I don't know. They are needs, I think, and for that it makes me sorry for the world because we are all so distracted and so needing of comfort, and then we layer upon layer cover ourselves in all the things that give us a sense of security and a sense of everything's going to be okay and all I can hope to do is keep listening to this conversation with you and grateful for your work and your wisdom in this conversation the as much of it as I can take
2: <laughs> well first of all I'm sorry that my end of things has confounded your plan and the scheme of questions you have on the paper before you It's probably not the best. It's probably not (laughs) the best outcome that either one of us could imagine. That's the first thing. Second thing is this. Please don't translate the inability for me to make myself clear enough and available enough and their consequence for you into some kind of shortcoming that you have. This is poor translation of the circumstance. If, if I may say, you see, it's more important to realize, I think that there are times and seasons for certain kinds of disposition. I'm not beyond everything you've described, all the frailties, all the longing after more, the reassurances and the rest. It's the only reason I can speak about them at all, is that they're not strangers to me either. It's just that right now, just right now in early 2023, you're sitting where you are, given your family circumstance and your responsibilities to them and your hopes for them and so forth. My kids are in their late thirties. I mean, it's over to them some time ago. So it's a different sensibility. That's all. You and I don't have to occupy the same zone of aspiration at all. So it's not a matter of, I got it, you don't got it, sorry for you, maybe later if you work really hard. And That's not the situation at all. The situation is in this moment, I'm lucky enough to have had most of my opinions stripped from me by working in the death trade. So that was quite a pivotal experience. All those human endings, they're really consequential, not debatable. And they helped me by taking so many things from me. So I was stolen from by working in that business, you see. And most of the things that you're asking me about, I lost some considerable time ago because I saw all the dying that I saw. I don't say it affects everybody this way but it did me. And I understand this to be a gift. It's not a gift that's easy to walk around with or to make available to others. But ultimately, I think that's what it is. So please understand that the differences for the moment between us, they belong. They're not an indication that somebody's, you know, done doing fabulously well and somebody not so much. They're just a sign as, oh, this is one of the things that differences in generations sound like. So partly I have a responsibility to translate and partly you do too, but very likely you'll be around longer than me. And you're going to have to live out the times that we're in longer than I had to. And that forces me to bypass reassuring you and to see if I can be faithful to you instead. And when I come at the end of the year, I'll try to do the same thing and see if you can make one of the shows or one of the events and we'll compare notes then.
0: I very, very much look forward to joining one of the workshops and I'm grateful that you're coming. I'm grateful for this conversation. I don't understand it fully, but I really understand it deeply. And I'm grateful to you, Stephen. Thank you.
2: Thank you, too. Thank you for the invitation to speak with you. I'm glad I did.
1: Thank you for joining us on the Dumbo Feather Podcast. That was Barry in conversation with Stephen Jenkinson. Stephen will be touring Australia and New Zealand with his Nights of Grief and Mystery Tour during October and November 2023. Go to www.orphanwisdom.com for more information. Until next time, until next time, thank you for joining us on the Dumbo Feather Podcast.
0: Thanks to our friends at The Natural Shoe Store, where you'll find footwear that's good for your feet and kind to the planet.